Well, uh, welcome to the church of 1122. We don't take ourselves very seriously, but we do take our relationship with Jesus very seriously. That might have been actually recorded at a meeting here. The only problem is I don't recognize anybody, so I think we may have gotten that from somewhere else. Hey, my name is Ryan Stone. I am the Bay Meadows campus pastor. If we hadn't met yet, uh, we are one church in many locations. And uh, hey, Bay, how are you guys doing? And uh, to you guys over here at San Pablo, Bay Meadows, the saints that worship there, they want to say hello uh, and greet you uh, with brotherly affection. Things are going really, really well at Bay Meadows. Yeah. And uh, I also say this, this is my first time to get to address the, the saints at the Mandarin campus. And uh, I know we are so proud of you as a church for the way that you have attacked that neighborhood with the gospel. Uh, Pastor Ben Phillips and that team there, you guys are doing amazing. Keep it up. It is an honor to be able to dig into the text today. We are in this series as we're digging into the book of Colossians. We were, we're kind of doing four mini-series inside of this book. And so we started with Before All Things in His Church. Uh, last week, we kind of ended this Before All Things in My Heart. And then today we're going to start this, uh, this three-week mini-series on Before All Things in My Day Today. So we're moving into this part of Colossians where Paul is addressing the family units of the church in Colossae. He's, he's talking to husbands and wives. I told Pastor Joby he can handle that when he gets back. Uh, we're talking to family and I, uh, parenting. I've got a five-year-old, so I wasn't really sure as a parent of a five-year-old if I was really ready to um, tell you how to raise teenagers because I don't have any. And so what I, got to, I get to do today is to dig into the last part of the text where it talks about work. Now, here's the deal. Before you start giving me a hard time, I do have a real job, all right? I get this all the time. As a pastor, like, what do you do the rest of the week? I play the guitar and sing Kumbaya, right? I have a real job. We have a real job here. We've got a pretty large church. So there's, there's organizational things to be done. There's the leading and discipling. There's preparing for the weekend. So I just say I have a real job. There are things about my job that I really, really love, and there are things about my job that I really don't like, right? Uh, there are people that I work with that I really love working with. And there are people that I work with that I don't like working with. And I don't even feel bad for saying that out loud because people who are hard to work with, they don't know it, right? They're actually, they don't even know I'm talking about them right now. You can, you're like, oh, I know who he's talking about. But the person I'm actually talking about has no clue. So I don't even feel like I've offended them, right? So there are things I like. There are people I like. There are things I don't like. They're, they're, I, I work a lot of hours. And I don't say that to brag. I just say that to say, hey, I too have a real job. And so I think I have a little bit of, uh, of credit to, to speak towards this. So with that being said, let's just go ahead and dig in to the text. Colossians chapter 3. It says this, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what I want to do today is go verse by verse, maybe even word by word, and dig into what does this text mean for us today in 2017. Let's get started. Verse, verse 22, the first word is bondservants. And I have to stop here for a second. The word bondservant, the Greek word is doulos. 
All right, and doulos literally means slave or bondservant. And Paul is actually writing this letter to a church in which probably 40 to 50% of the church were actually in a slave-master relationship. Many of the communities in this time had 30 to 40% of the, uh, of the people in their town were actually in slavery. Now, some translations choose the word servant or bondservant in order to eliminate the distraction that comes with the injustice that we know as the slave trade that our country engaged in in the 17 and 1800s. And because of that inhumanity of slavery in America, it's almost impossible for us to think about this context of slavery without the negativity and the just cruelty of slave trade in our country. And I say this to say Paul is talking to those who are in slavery. Now, I, this verse does not uh, condone it. Paul is not attempting to condone slavery and say it's okay. And instead, um, in the book of Colossians and also in the book of Ephesians, Paul is actually trying to lay down tracks for the gospel. Because what Paul knew is that the gospel inevitably leads to the correct treatment of all people, no matter their race economic status, or religion. In fact, the gospel is the only answer to equality. And what Paul is doing is he's laying these gospel tracks down, not trying to fight and just uh, wage war on slavery, but instead he's trying to declare the kingdom of heaven coming and the gospel inevitably would end the institution of slavery. So not only is Paul trying to lay these gospel tracks, but at the same time, Paul is giving encouragement to the Christian who is in slavery. And really, the same encouragement is true for us today. No matter the circumstance, all of us have one master, and his name is Jesus Christ. So Paul is laying down these gospel tracks, and at the same time, he's encouraging the Christian who is in slavery. What's he encouraging them to do? It goes on to say this. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. The word obey means a continuous, uninterrupted submission to one's master. Or let me translate that today's context. A continuous, uninterrupted submission to one's boss. It's the same word that's used for the uh, uh, parent-child relationship. And Paul is saying we should have this uninterrupted submission to our boss. The only caveat we find in Scripture, we find in Acts 4 and Ephesians 6, is if what is being asked of you by your earthly master or your earthly boss would require you to disobey what God asks of you. Other than that, Scripture says all of us should submit and obey our bosses, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Eye service simply means this. It's working well only when you're being watched or evaluated. It's kind of my approach to the gym, right? If I'm in the gym, I'm lifting everything I can. When a coach comes by, right, and the coach is coming by, I start snatching and lifting. I'm, I'm the strongest man in the gym. And as soon as the coach turns away and goes the other direction, it's rest time, right? So you're just working when someone's looking or people pleasing. This means this, to work only to impress others, at the, at, instead of impressing God. It, it's caring more about the, the, uh, the reputation you have amongst peers than you do to please your creator. So Paul says, do not work only when others are looking. Don't look only for the credit of others, but work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
In other words, we should sincerely work for the eyes of our heavenly master. There's an implication here. If Christ is our master, then his eyes are always on us. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't blink. He doesn't look the other way. And so in everything we do, we have an opportunity to honor and and glorify and worship our heavenly father. There's a fundamental question that comes out of verse 22, and it's this. Why am I doing the task at hand? Am I doing it to worship in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I doing it aiming to appease a boss, aiming to get a reward, uh, aiming to get a promotion uh, for the applause of men? It goes on, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. All right, just for a second, think about this. All three campuses, think about this just for a second. What if we as, as believers... What would the world look like if just believers worked as if everything we did was for the Lord? There would never be a Christian without multiple job offers. I mean, just think about this. If we just did what the Bible says we should do, we would be the best employees in all of humanity. Why? Well, the Bible says don't steal. You know what good bosses are looking for? People that don't steal, right? The Bible says don't cheat. That's important. Don't lie. I really enjoy it when my team does not lie to me. When they lie to me, I don't like it, right? Uh, The Bible says don't go after dishonest gain or don't gossip. Like just think about this for a second. If we as believers did not go to the, uh, the water cooler, the coffee pot to share the latest happenings of our life, just think about the number of hours that we would actually have to get work done. Like if you just cut gossip out of the work week, there's at least three to four hours a day of productivity that, that just shows up. I think we should work this way. And here's why. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In other words, we can work as unto the Lord because what we know is that God is solely responsible to credit and reward appropriate to the attitude and actions of our heart. In other words, we can trust that God is going to take care of me. But do we really believe this? Like, do we read a verse like this and really believe that God is sovereign and just? Like, do we really believe that if I'm obedient and I work, that God is responsible to provide for us? Well, here's the truth. He is responsible and he will provide. And not only will he provide, but he's actually going to provide what we don't deserve. See, no one actually deserves an inheritance. And verse 24 says the inheritance will be your reward. You see, inheritance is actually given by the goodness of the father, not by the work of the son. And in addition to not even deserving it, but we are, we, the text is kind of talking to us as if we are slaves. No slave ever got an inheritance. And what Christ did on the cross was took us as slaves to sin and made us sons of righteousness. So we went from not deserving inheritance to deserving it based off the fact that our heavenly father is so good. Not that we work for inheritance, but that we receive it out of his goodness. We must work in a way in which we trust that God will provide. It goes on and says this, you are serving the Lord. You ever thought about this? Every job you've ever had, You've been put there to serve the Lord. You haven't been put there to get a paycheck. You've been put in your job to serve the Lord. So if you work at Costco, God bless you. Amen for your ministry, right? 
The number of eggs we buy from you a month at the Stonehouse alone is worth the ministry of Costco. But if you're at Costco or Trader Joe's or somewhere, stock the shelves in the name of Jesus. Like if you're in banking or finance, guess what? You should make a lot of money for a lot of people in the name of Jesus. If you're in construction, cool, that's where Jesus started. He went on to be savior. I don't think that's in your promotion future, but, but work as unto the Lord. Hey, if you're a mama and you have been blessed to stay home and you've been called to stay home, raise a missionary. Administrate and steer your household. Maybe you're in the service industry, maybe a gym or a restaurant or a hotel. You should serve people, every single person, as if they are Jesus. Maybe you're in nonprofits. Don't just miss needs, but worship Jesus so that everyone could see. Lawyers, you've been put on the front edge so that you would fight against injustice. Salesmen, be above reproach so that every deal you make, Christ gets the credit. Teachers, shape the future in the name of Jesus. If you're in the military or you're a first responder, don't ever forget that God has placed you where he's placed you to protect those that he has called you to protect. And maybe you're a drug dealer. If it's in a pharmacy, keep doing your thing in the name of Jesus. <laughs> if it's not in a pharmacy, this might be a message for you. It might be time for you to get a new job, right? Here's what I want you to hear. In the busyness of your work, do not get narrow-minded on daily tasks and miss that there's a kingdom being built. And you and I have been invited to build the kingdom of God in the jobs he's given us. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. There's like a 100% chance you're going to get wronged in life. I mean, have you ever just played the board game life? All right, I'm playing the board game life with my five-year-old. Her name is Emery. She skips college. She becomes an artist. She makes $100,000. I, trying to set a lesson before my daughter, go to college. I become a doctor for the grand total of $30,000 a year. And I land on every single tile that says, you decided to buy a painting, pay the artist 30 grand. That's my entire salary. Here's the thing about life. Here's why the game is so frustrating. Because it's so realistic. Like life is going to get you at some point. There's no way to avoid it. So what do we do? Well, first of all, do we, we have to trust the scripture. If the scripture says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, God is going to handle it. So the, the fundamental, the root thing that we have to do is actually read God's word and go, God's word is true. I'm going to reorient all my life around truth instead of trying to bend truth to fit into my upside down life. So we just have to believe it. The second thing, if it is true that God is going to handle it, then we have to learn to write it off. Sometimes it's as easy as saying it out loud. Like, have you ever, like, had something in your heart that's all jacked up, and then you say it out loud, and the moment you say it out loud, you realize, that's just silly. Like, if somebody else said that to me, I would tell them to get over their self. Well, maybe you need to look at a mirror, say it out loud, and go, get over yourself. All right? Sometimes it might be a little more aggressive and you need to actually write it down and, and crumple it up and throw it in a trash can. Or if you're a dude, crumple it up and burn it. Why wouldn't you burn it? And so actually physically writing it down allows you maybe to release it. Or some of you, you just need a good friend that's going to say, you know what, you're right to feel that way, but you're wrong to linger in that. 
for me, it's one of our pastors, his name's Ryan Britt. And he, like, if you know Pastor Britt, like up front, he kind of presents himself as this kind of driven, intense dude. He is a tender teddy bear, like, at the, like once you get past the armor, right? And he's one of them, I love that dude. I, I can go sit in his office or give him a phone call. And he says, hey, Stone, that's great. You are right to feel that way. But you're going to ruin your life and you're going to crush your marriage if you linger there too long. Right? It's probably not your spouse, right? Because women, if you go to tell your husband, hey, somebody wronged me, and you continue to talk, he's done listening. He's now trying to fix it, right? So if you talk for 10 minutes, he heard 30 seconds. It does not matter. And, and, and it's true for husbands too. Like if I tell my wife, hey, someone wronged me, um, she's done listening to me, and she's trying to figure out where the pistol or the knife is, she's going to go kill somebody. That's how women are wired. Women are wired to take care of daddy. Daddy's wired to try to fix the whole world. So you might need a friend. And if you don't have a friend, you need to join a disciple group, all right? Um, Monday night at all of our campuses, we have a disciple group experience, which is an opportunity for you to go test out disciple groups. You need to get in one, right? If you're not in a disciple group, it's your fault. We're giving you a lot of opportunities. Just get in one and find somebody and say, hey, would you be a friend in my life that I can kind of say, I got wronged and you just tell me the truth? Let's keep going. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you know this? The best leaders realize that they're first followers. The best leaders realize they're first followers. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul knew to lead people, he had to follow somebody. Christian masters or Christian bosses are first themselves slaves to Christ. Now, I love these two words, and I could probably do an entire sermon just on this, these two words, justly and fairly. They kind of, um, they're kind of the same language we would use when we say equality. In other words, Paul is stressing that the equality is the responsibility of the manager. Your job, if you are a boss at any of our campuses, is to lift up your team in any way possible. To fight for them to get promotions, to fight for them to get raises, to fight for them to get more responsibility, uh, to get all the roadblocks out of their way. It is your job to lift them up. As a boss, you own the trust and respect of your whole team. And as the Lord increases your leadership, you own the trust and respect of the whole organization. Now, here's the big idea. I worked all week long trying to get a, a really well-crafted big idea so that you'd walk out of here and remember it. And then I realized it's just kind of one of the verses. So the big idea, uh, uh, God wrote it, uh, and I'm just delivering it. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. And I want to take um, the six words right in the middle, work heartedly as for the Lord. And I want to kind of dig in into three different distinct parts of that phrase. First is this, work. I love the, love the verse here. Hey, whatever you do, work. All right, so the first thing, if we're going to be obedient to Scripture, is this, get a job. Right? If you're in school, maybe you're in college or younger, sweet. Your school is your job. And you should aim at a 4.0 every single semester. Parents, elbow your kids right now. You should, you should aim at a 4.0 every single semester. Why? Because you do not want to develop lazy habits of not working unto the Lord now that you've got to fix later in life. Can you imagine trying to get a job and go, I'm going to be here about 70% of the time. Why? Well, C's are degrees. I would not hire you. 
You were unhirable. And here's the deal. If you're in school and you're 16 years or older, get a real job too. Start paying some of your own bills, all right? If you're taking your girlfriend out on mom and dad's credit card, that don't count, all right? Um, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. You've been blessed with the opportunity to stay at home. Um, you've been called to do it. Like some women are called to do it. Some women are not. Um, I, I know as a man, there is zero chance I'm called to do this. But if you're, if you're called to stay at home, be aggressive in raising your children to love Jesus and know the gospel. Love your husbands intentionally. Women, you want to just make your man, you know, poke out his chest and kind of strut around the living room? Grab his hand this afternoon and just say, hey, thank you so much for working and letting me stay at home. Thank you for that. My five-year-old did that a couple weeks ago, and I just started crying. I was like, what? right? And so it, it, it melted my heart. I was all kind of messed up, right? And so um, love your husband, set some goals, and crush them. Um, if you're employed, right, here's what you need to do. You need to work whistle to whistle. Like, you just need to work. Right? That means some of you, you got to get off Facebook to get the job done. You should be getting there like 15 minutes early, and you should be leaving like 15 minutes late and just working whistle to whistle. And if you're retired, you're like, hey, I retired. I don't need to get a job. I had a job, and then I, I don't need it anymore. No problem. You retired from your 8 to 5 job. You did not retire from God's call on your life. we got a guy named Joe Key here. He's amazing. He used to be a big stinking deal at the uh, Adamac Harley-Davidson. They used to sell Harleys, and he... Big stinking deal. The man retires, and like a week later, he shows up here, and he's like, what can I do? And he's like a full-time volunteer on our short-term mission trip team. So if you've ever gone on a mission trip, which, by the way, all of you need to in the next three years, um, he is playing an active role. He said, you know, I retired from the paying job that I used to go to every day, but I've not retired from God's call in my life. Well, why do we need to work? Well, first of all, it's the first command in Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 says this, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So the first reason we should get a job and work hard at whatever God's called us to do is this, we should work hard because God commanded it. He said, go and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over it. So whatever category you're in, in school, retired, got a job, stay-at-home parent, like whatever that is, you should work hard at it because God commanded it. The second reason is this, is because work is a good gift from God. Work was a part of humanity before the fall, before sin, work existed. And God said everything that happened before, the, before sin, before the fall, he said it was good. And so God commands it and God blesses it. It is good. Finally, the reason we should work is that it's actually what God has chosen to mature us through. God has chosen work to be the tool that he matures us through. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about the church, but it, it applies to us as the church body. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we are to work until we are united in faith and mature until the, and the, the measure of maturity is that we are measured, uh, our maturity is measured to the fullness of Christ. You cannot mature in faith if you're not willing to work. 
Here's why. Disobedience does not lead to maturity. God says work. And if we don't work, we are actually missing out on the very tool that God has given us to mature us. Not only should we work, but we should work heartedly. Now, the word there in Greek is the same word we get um, psyche from, right? You know, like psychology and, and, you know, that kind of our inner being, our soul. And so literally it's saying like work with all of your soul. Another way to say it would be this. Pour all of your soul into your work. Work passionately. If someone were to ask you, what are the top three things you're passionate about? Now, we might have answers all over the spectrum, but some of the answers should land in these categories. I'm I'm passionate about my relationship with Jesus. I'm passionate about my family. I'm passionate about friends, about earthly relationships. And I'm passionate about my work. It should be one of the answers that's towards the top of our list. If you were to ask me, hey, hey Stone, what, what are some of your hobbies? All right, I would tell you, so I like to play golf. Uh, we can do that whenever you want. I'm a campus pastor, so if you want to play golf, I'll just tell them I'm at the other campus and we can go play golf. It's great, one of the perks of the job. Um, but I love playing golf. I love sports. I'll go to anything. I went to a NASCAR race last week, honestly, because somebody said it counts as a sport, and I was there, right? I love sports. I love country concerts. But if you said, hey, what's your number one hobby? You know what it is? Work. You know why? I really, really, really love what I do. Like, if I could just do what I do for the rest of my life, I would have a really, really fun life. And I know some of you are like, hey, that that kind of sounds like maybe you're a workaholic. No, no, I'm not saying be a workaholic. I'm not saying like sacrifice your relationship with with the Lord or relationship with your family. I'm saying I really love what I do. I know some of you are like, but you're, you're cheating. Like, don't you work for the Lord? Yeah. But I think if we read scripture, guess what? I think we all work for the Lord. I think we all work. There's no separation between what you do and what I do in the eyes of God. God does not have like a, a scale of like, well, this guy's a pastor, so he gets extra bonus points. No. In fact, I believe this is true. Genuine service in an honest vocation brings honor to God. Genuine service in an honest vocation brings honor to God. It is an act of worship. You know, that's really what Before All Things is all about. It is not about dollars. Before All Things is about asking the question, am I putting Christ before all things. My, my energy, my time, my talent, what am I leveraging my entire life for? What am I using my life to be an influence for? Before all things is about saying, Christ, I want to put you before all things so that in before all things and in all things, I'm influencing those around me for the sake of the cross. I think you actually may have more influence in our culture than I ever will. I think you, uh, in your place of work, in your place of influence, in your sphere of leadership, you have more opportunities to influence culture than I will. You know why? I don't work where you work. Like Pastor Joby does not lead like a prayer at the beginning of every one of your staff meetings. Some of you are like, if we even prayed in our staff meeting, right? You have more influence. This became really, really clear to me a couple weeks ago. I had an opportunity to go to Nashville uh, with, a, with a guy that goes to church here. His name's Lou Ramirez. He came up to me and said, hey, Stone, here's this deal. Um, we're going to Nashville, and I want you to come preach and teach at this prayer breakfast. Would you be willing to do it? And I heard Nashville, and then I was on the plane. I was like, now, where are we going? What are we doing? Like, tell me more. 
And there's this week, it is last week, and Nashville invites all of country music radio from all over the world, because apparently there's a United Kingdom's country music station. Weird. All right, and they bring them all in. And what Lou decided, he's going to leverage his entire life for the sake of the gospel. And so right in the middle of this week, which is all about patting each other on the back and late nights with one too many cocktails and blaming somebody else for overserving you, he said right in the middle of this week, he says, I want to do this prayer breakfast and we're just going to talk about Jesus and we're going to put it the morning after the latest night of the whole convention. He's like, would you come and teach it? And I was like, Lou, you and I could just do it right here. I don't have to fly to Nashville, but it's just going to be me and you. And I walked into the room on, on the morning after the latest night I've ever stayed up in my whole life. And I walk in and sitting in the room is the number two person at a super large label that has put people on the radio that if you listen to country music, you know their names. And if you don't listen to country music, we're a movement for all people and the Lord will, he will sanctify you. It's coming, <laughs> all right? And so the number two person in a really large label and over here in this corner was the program director of the year for country music. And in this corner was the, the country, the director of the radio station that won radio station of the year. And then there was Ryan up front reading the Bible and talking about King David and talking about the fact that God's always used music to influence culture. And what I realized in that moment is, is our job as teaching pastors and pastors and staff is to equip you and send you back into your areas of influence, send you back into your job, send you back into your world, back into your homes, that you would shape and change culture. That God's placed Lou and God's placed you in a spot in which you declare the glories of Christ and all those around you would see. Whatever you do, do it with great passion. God made you and put you on this earth for a reason. You have to find out what that reason is and do it passionately. So we're going to work. We're going to work heartedly. And then the last part of this, we're going to work heartedly as unto the Lord. Now, if you've ever heard me teach, there's usually a whiteboard on stage. And they told me, they told me I can't have a whiteboard anymore because it's hard because you can't see it at Bay Meadows. It's pretty true. Or a Mandarin. And so they gave me this really cool TV. But before you know it, I'm going to get a dry erase marker and I'm just going to draw on the TV. And what are they going to do then, right? So here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how do we work heartedly as unto the Lord. I want to start here. Um, just imagine this is you. Uh, and then this is kind of good things, right? I think we stole this check mark from like men's degree deodorant. So we're going to get a copyright suit, lawsuit here soon. But um, we all are wired to do good things. It's naturally wired in us. Um, from the time we were young, um, we get rewarded M&Ms when we pee-pee in the toilet. And then it moves on to like... Don't you wish you still got M&Ms when you pee-peed in the toilet? I do. All right. And then it moved on to like preschool. We get gold stars for good behavior. And then it became grades. And then it became GPA. And then it became promotions. And then it became uh, good salaries. And then it becomes good retirement. But all of our life, we're trying to do good things. We want to do good things. We're naturally rewarded for good things. We want to do good. And as believers, we even want to do good things according to what the Holy, like the Bible says. We want to be good according to the word. The, the problem is this, the trap is this, who are we doing this good for? Like, are we trying to do good for God? Like, we're trying to do good and trying to impress Jesus, or are we trying to do good to impress men? Here's what I know is true. We cannot pour our souls out for more than one thing. Jesus says you cannot have two masters. Galatians 6, 14, it says, am I trying to appease man or am I trying to appease God? 
And, and here's where we got to pause for a second before we dig into this illustration is this really starts to sound like work harder. Like we're trying to, or do I work really hard for Jesus or am I working for man? And it sounds for a second, like I'm not teaching this, but it's really easy to hear like, oh, I got to go work harder for Jesus. We start asking this question. We start beating ourselves up and go, how can I do anything good for Jesus? I mean, Pastor Stone, don't you and all the other teaching pastors talk about how we are wretched, black-hearted sinners and that our best deeds are, are filthy rags? Yes, we do, because that's what the Bible says. I mean, my best ain't good enough. And now all of a sudden you're saying I'm supposed to be good enough to do good things for God. Well, the danger is the question we're asking is what do I do? And really it's supposed to be this, how can I abide? It's not about doing good things. It's actually, if we're going to work heartedly as unto the Lord, we want, abide, we want to abide in Jesus. John chapter 15 says it this way. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we look at it this way, abiding is about being. We want to be in Christ. When we're abiding in Christ, we're focusing on the efforts of Christ on the cross. Doing is about working harder. If I'm trying to do good things, what I'm focusing on is my good works. Abide in Christ focuses on the work of Christ. Do work harder focuses on my work. Now I want to flesh out this abide thing. When we think about abide in Christ, Christ in me, we have to, let's start here, abide in Christ. We've got to think identity precedes activity. Intimacy in Christ precedes action. How do I do this? Well, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. So one of the ways that we abide in Christ is that we think on him. We think on him first we think on him often. This is why we put the daily reading plan in your, uh, in your bulletin. It's why we put it all over social media. It says we want to give you some scripture. It says, hey, maybe in the morning, wake up and read some of the word and think about Christ first and think about Christ often. A second thing we do is we want to be in environments that calls us to worship him. James says it this way, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's why we do worship the way we do worship. We gather, we sing. I know the music's really loud. If we turn the music down, you'll stop singing, right? So we turn the music up really loud so that it covers us. It's like karaoke. Nobody can tell how loud you are, except for it's not karaoke for the sake of karaoke. It is worship as unto the Lord. And we preach the word of God. And our whole goal is we want to be in this environment where we're thinking about Christ. And how as we think about Christ, it propels us and projects us into the week. It's why we do response at the end of every service the way we do it. We want to create this sacred space where we can just abide and think about Christ. I want to encourage you this, this Lent season to fast with us. At all of our campuses on Wednesday, we are opening up from 12 to 1 from a time of prayer. And you've, if you're medically able, we're, we're, our, the elders have called our entire church to fast from food from sunup to sundown. Just drink water throughout the day. And then if you're able to come to a campus, you come at, from 12 to 1. We're going to gather and pray. If you're not able to make it to one of our campuses, just you know, you're not eating lunch. So just take that time and go into a place of quiet and just spend some time praying. We want to abide in Christ. 
And as we think about Christ, Christ begins to live in us and through us. Galatians chapter 2 says it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, as I abide in Christ, it's no longer me living in my flesh. I I am crucified myself to the cross, and now Christ is living in me. The implications of the gospel is really everything we're longing for. What do I mean? I mean, as we dwell and we think about Christ, Christ begins to live in us. And as he lives in us, he produces in us all the things we used to try to do on our own. That actually those good deeds, those good things come from intimacy with Christ precedes action. You think about it this way. Uh, uh, Throughout the Bible, it talks about spiritual gifts. Gifts of mercy, gifts of servanthood, gifts of teaching and leadership. We can spend all our life trying to do those. But the way it was designed is that we abide in Christ and Christ actually produces those things in us. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit. That we would be, uh, have patience, kindness, self-control. We can spend our entire life trying to control ourselves. Or we can think about Christ, dwell with Christ, draw near to Christ. And then Christ produces in us self-control. 2 Peter chapter 1 has a list of virtues, knowledge, brotherly affection, steadfastness. These are things that Christ are producing in us. As we were getting ready for this sermon, I thought it would be beneficial to just ask some of our business leaders throughout the church, what do you long for? What do you look for in good employees? In other words, what are you saying? These are the check marks for good employees. And so I was able to ask CEOs and HR executives, lawyers, small business owners. I was able to talk to a couple of individuals who had just taken their company public. And so I said, hey, tell me a few things that you're looking for. And these words came up, trustworthy, grit determination, discernment, humility, integrity. These are all things that Christ is doing in us. And we can spend our lives trying to do, but but as we abide, he does it in us. This is my favorite. This is a text. It said, honesty, good attitude, willingness to learn, dot, 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 someone like you. That made me feel good. You know who that was from? My father-in-law. Don't you wish your father-in-law loved you the way mine does? Hey, Wit, he'll, he'll be watching this later, right? Here's the deal. When we abide in Christ, Christ produces fruit in us. And this is how it was designed, that as he produces fruits in us, we begin to shine. Matthew 5 says it this way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, there's a trap. Here's a trap. As we begin to abide in Christ and he dwells in us and, and he produces in us things that makes us shine is that the applause of man. There's going to be applause. When these positive adjectives, these, these attractive things of us get noticed, people begin to applaud. And they're going to applaud you. Here's why. It's easier to applaud you and the implications of the gospel because it's really, really hard to see intimacy in, with Jesus. It's hard to applaud this intimacy because it's happening in the still quiet hours. No one sees it. So they begin to applaud you. And here's the danger. When people start to applaud you, we start to love. I do. We start to love the applause of men. So here's what happens. We start trying to do good things for other people so that they would applaud us. 
What we ultimately do is we hijack the implications of the gospel. This is what God's doing in us. We hijack them in order to serve our own idolatrous, works-based idolatry. And here's the ultimate danger. In order to do this, to do good for others, and ultimately we have to neglect the power of the gospel. We have to neglect the person of Jesus. In other words, we're saying this, I don't need you, Jesus. I can do good on my own, and here's how I can tell. I can do some good, other people notice, and I get applauded. I don't actually need you, Jesus. I can do this. This is why some of us are so exhausted. We're exhausted because you're more concerned with pleasing those that can't be appeased to the neglect of the one that is so pleased with you, he died on the cross. Here's why we're exhausted. You spend all of your energy being a perfect employee rather than resting in the fact that on the cross, Christ made you perfect once and for all. Like we begin to leverage our life for idols instead of leaning into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Christ has produced in us becomes our functional savior. Here's what I mean. Christ is producing these good things in you and we neglect Christ for the things of Christ. We neglect our relationship with our heavenly father for the gifts that he gives us. We start leveraging our lives for the stuff so that the applause will not end. God is growing things in us. We hijack those things. We we would prefer the stuff of God ignoring the person of God for the applause of men. And it happens and it's dangerous in all of our hearts. So what do we do? How do, we, how do we break this cycle of, of wanting to, the applause of man? The first of all is this. It, it, it's going to take work, but it's possible. Here's the first thing we have to do. We have to be diligent in choosing to abide over choosing to do. Now, it's not you hear one sermon, boom, you're out of here, you got it forever. It is a lifelong pursuit to abide and rest in the person of Jesus. It is a lifetime of thinking of him first. It's a lifetime of every single day picking up our cross and carrying it, dying to ourselves. It is a ton of work. It is a ton of discipline. It's a ton of sacrifice to say, not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Now, here's the beautiful promise of the scripture. The Holy Spirit will give you everything you need for life and godliness. But day in and day out, we have to choose to abide overdue. The second thing is this. We got to pray for discernment. We got to pray for discernment. The moment the applause starts for us is the exact moment in which we need to discern and redirect the applause. The moment the applause starts in us needs to be, it is not I. I have crucified myself. It is Christ in me. It's not even that we're trying to do good things for Jesus. It's that Jesus is doing good things in us. So the moment the world begins to applaud us and cheer for us and we begin to work as unto people is the very moment we need to fall on our knees in repentance and say, it is not I, but it's Christ who does it in me. Pouring out all of your soul in your work starts by surrendering your soul to Jesus. You cannot pour out all of your soul if you have not surrendered your soul unto the lordship of Jesus Christ. So here's how we're gonna respond today. Here's the invitation I give you. First, some of you need to surrender your life to Jesus. 
Like in this moment, you've been spending your entire life uh, for the sake of pleasing man, and today you need to surrender your whole life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You need to repent and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Some of us are in here, and we are believers, and we just need to repent because we have, been, we have made our work an idol. Um, we have been lazy. We, we have been uh, prideful. We have not worked as unto the Lord. We've worked unto our own reputation. And then there's some of us who need to walk out of your day, and we need, you need to call or schedule a meeting with your boss or with your employees, and you need to apologize to them that you have elevated your own reputation, your own comforts, overworking as unto the Lord, and you need to apologize. So at all three of our campuses and sanctuary, if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to give us the opportunity to respond. No matter where you're at, if in this moment you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ with your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you raise your hand? Say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I've been the Lord of my own life, and, and the, the applause of man has been the, the measure to which I Lord, and I surrender. If your hand's raised right now, I just want you to tell the Lord what you're, what you're saying with your hand raised. Lord, I surrender. I confess you as Lord and Savior. Now, there's another group I want to invite. Those who say, you know what, I'm a believer, and Christ is the Lord of my life, but I have not worked as unto the Lord. I've worked as unto man, and I need to repent at all of our campuses, all of our locations. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Say, I repent, and, and I want, Pastor, would you pray for me? And I repent that I have not worked unto the Lord. If your hand's raised right now, I want you to keep it raised as I pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you that you first loved us. God, that you have, you have been the one who've called us to repent. God, you are the one who calls us to lay uh, down our um, brokenness before you. And you're the one who heals us. You're the one who forgives us. You're the one who even in this moment... God, you're giving us the strength and the courage to wake up tomorrow to think often about you, to think about you, and to go into our day working and pouring our souls out as unto you, Lord. And we pray this in your precious and your holy name we pray. Amen.